All right, well, you can open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20 will be in verses 9 through 19. I was reading a book not too long ago, and I don't want to give away the title of the book because I'm about to give away uh, the ending. But as I'm reading the book, I'm realizing that there's there's enough foreshadowing and there's enough foreboding in in the lead up to the end of the book, that the main character is essentially marching towards his own death. And because of the foreshadowing, you know it as a reader, but the main character doesn't know it, or else likely he's not going to walk that path. I mean, this wasn't like some sacrificial, I know I'm going to go lay down my life sort of death. If he knew that he was marching towards his death, he may not head down that path. So you know it as a reader, the main character doesn't know it. He doesn't know he's on the path to his own demise. And as we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, one thing is crystal clear to us, that Jesus is marching towards his own death. Right? But he's not like the, the main character in the book that I was reading. Right? That guy didn't know he was on his way to his own death. Jesus absolutely knows he is on his way. Right? He has set his face towards Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 51, right after predicting his own death. He knows, I must go to Jerusalem during the Passover to lay down my life. And, and so the way that we know that Jesus is headed towards his own death, he's the one that's told us. Right? He's the one that has said it in the Gospel of Luke. Now, since Jesus rode into Jerusalem in chapter 19, he has been in conflict with the religious leaders of Israel, right? He's been teaching in the temple. They don't like that. Uh, He he cast out the money changers and and the sellers in the temple, right? So he's been in in conflict with the religious leaders of Israel. In Luke 19, they're called the scribes. The, the principal men of Israel and the chief priests. And they have gotten together and they've conspired that Jesus has to go. Right? They have to destroy Jesus. And so what happens in our text this morning is that these guys are put on notice. They're put on notice that their days are actually numbered. That they will actually be successful in killing Jesus. But even in that, even as we saw last week, if you were with us last week, we saw that even those who are opposing Jesus are simply fulfilling what he said would happen way back in chapter 9 when he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes. He said it's going to happen, they're doing it, they are simply fulfilling the will of God to provide salvation to sinners through the death and the subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the rejection by the leaders in Israel and and eventually, right, in a couple chapters, the majority of Israel will follow their leaders in rejecting Christ, right? So the rejection of Jesus by these leaders and eventually the majority of God's covenant people, Israel, would lead then to the gospel going to the nations, right? It would lead to the nations being included in these promises the gospel would go to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
So I think that's sort of the, the major theme that Jesus is, is driving at, that this opposition will actually lead to his death, which he, which he said would happen, which will lead to the gospel going to the nations. Or I think the way I wrote it in that handout, if you grabbed a handout for notes, I think I said it this way. It's a little bit wordy, but it's the best I can do. God has sovereignly orchestrated salvation history to glorify the Son by exalting Him even though, or you might say, through his rejection. Through being rejected. So here's what we're going to do, do this morning. Um, Paul read the text for us. We're going we're gonna to look at the parable. We're going to make some, some comments along the way about the parable. Try to give the gist of the parable. And then I want us to notice a couple things on, on the other side of the parable when Jesus starts to apply this thing. I want us to see something of God's character, and I want us to see something of God's plan. Okay, so let's look at the parable first. It begins there in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. So we've just said that Jesus has been interacting with the religious leaders. Who, and again, if you are here last week, they tried to confront him on his authority. Like, where does your authority come from? And they're, they're trying to undermine Jesus in front of the people. Of course, when you try to undermine Jesus, you get embarrassed and you look like a fool. And that's exactly what happened. They, they end up getting asked a question back to them um, that they cannot answer. And they eventually refuse to answer because, one, they're afraid of the people. And we'll see that that continues even in our text. They're afraid of the people. And two, they can't, they can't give the other response because that would be affirming John the Baptist's ministry who said, well, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. So Jesus actually uh, refuses to interact with them uh, since they're engaging in poor faith, right? We said that anyone who comes to Jesus for help receives help, right? But for those religious leaders, he has now rejected them because they're dealing with him in poor faith. And so what happens in verse 9, Jesus now addresses the people. It's like he's been interacting with these guys, turns and addresses the people. So in our text, you've got the people and you've got the religious leaders, and they've been sort of distinguished from one another. And he's addressing the people, but these guys are still in his crosshairs. Right? He's talking about them to the people uh, in our passage. And he begins with what, we've, what is a parable, right? A parable is, is a story that's packed with truth, a story that's designed to drive at a particular truth. Jesus would use parables. He would, he would use them at times to reveal truth to those who are uh, interested in Jesus, who want to follow Jesus. But it would, at the same time, it would be concealing truth from those who were hard-hearted against Jesus. They wouldn't understand the truth of the parable. Here, it seems like everybody understands. Some accept the meaning. Others reject the meaning. So the parable begins with, with a man who plants a vineyard. He plants the, this vineyard, and he's going to hire it out to tenants, Right? And this would be kind of a, a, a win-win for both sides, right? Because the guy 
the guy has a vineyard, he sort of plants it, but he gets to go on vacation while somebody else does the work. But these guys also win in a sense because they get to come, they get to work, they get to benefit from the land, but they didn't have to put their own money forward for the land. So it's sort of a, sort of a win-win for both. Plant a vineyard, I'll go on a long journey, you take care of the land. But what we find in our text is, we find out really quickly that these tenants are wicked and selfish. Right? So, so after a period of time, the, the owner sends one of his servants to go collect some of the produce to come back to him. They can keep some. He's going to take some. After all, he owns the land and he has hired the tenants. But these tenants, unexplainedly, beat and cast out and send away empty-handed this servant who has been sent. All right, so when we interpret a parable, right, we want to be careful not to press every detail. We'll, 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 see, that, uh, we'll see that really clearly here in a second. A parable sort of works like a sermon illustration. Right, You can nitpick any sermon illustration. If you push it far enough, you'll say, well, that doesn't actually work because of, you know, I remember when I was doing Colossians, and I said, Colossians is like a vaccine against false teaching. And you guys were kind enough to say, you know what a vaccine is? Actually, it's introdu- introducing the bad thing into your body. Right, So you can push any illustration too far. We don't want to do that. But with that in mind, I think we're, we're sort of in a position to kind of begin to put together some of the details of the parable. We already know that these, these tenants are wicked. They're selfish. And if you glance down there at verse 19, it, the, the text actually tells us who Jesus is talking about. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Why? For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Well, this, the text tells us, right? So we're, we're not wading into wild conjecture here. The text actually tells us the wicked tenants are these, these blind spiritual leaders who have disqualified themselves because they don't care about the truth. They only care about their hatred for Jesus. Now we'll see. I, I think these tenants are representative of, of Israel's history. They have continually rejected God's messengers. And that's, that's the question then, right? So you've got, you've got these, these tenants, and they're rejecting these, the, these messengers. Well, who are, who are the messengers? Well, those I think if we read something like Jeremiah 7, well, they're not, they're not called messengers. They're called servants in our text. So if we read Jeremiah 7, it says this. God says this. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, who? The prophets to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. So three times in our text, these servants are sent to the tenants. They're beaten and they're thrown out. And so it's, it's representative of Israel's history where God would send these prophets and they would deliver the message and yet Israel had no fruit, particularly the religious leaders of Israel, had no fruit to speak of uh, on their own behalf. And so they rejected God's message. 
prophets. Right in Jeremiah 7, he calls them servants, said, I continually sent them, and they were continually rejected. Israel would not hear from God's messengers, and they demonstrated no fruit, no commitment to the truth, no commitment to the Lord. And we've already seen Jesus condemn the religious leaders of his day by saying that the the sins that characterized your fathers characterize you as well. He he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, the only prophet you honor is a dead prophet. You like to decorate their tombs, but if you really want to honor a prophet, listen to his word because his word is from the Lord. His word is from the Lord. And this is what Israel's history has been racked with, right? Rejecting the prophets of the Lord. You know, Hebrews 13 talks about prophets being sawn in two. You know, this is, this is tradition. This is not like, so tradition would say that was Isaiah. We don't hold tradition on the same level as Scripture, right? That could be true or false. It doesn't, it doesn't I don't lose sleep over that at night. But they rejected Isaiah. Jeremiah was constantly mistreated abused, thrown into a pit in Jeremiah 38. Ezekiel was faced with hostility and hatred. Amos was forced to flee for his life. Zechariah was rejected. Right? We saw even in the New Testament, we saw that John the Baptist was the last of the, the quote Old Testament prophets which were going to point forward to Christ. Well, they, they by and large rejected Jesus. And so what we have, I think, in this parable is a, a sort of zoomed out history of Israel. That the, this vineyard has been planted. I, in other words, God elected Israel to be his treasured possession, right? I think that's what Jesus is, electing, is alluding to when he says this, this landowner planted a vineyard. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you'll find Israel called a vineyard. And so... They were, they were elect, they were called, God made a covenant with Israel. They were set apart, they were meant to serve Him, to be holy only unto Him as treasured people. They were given a task, not only to obey the law, but to be a light to the nations. And a kingdom of priests through Israel was meant to mediate the truth of God to the nations. And so he, he chose his people, he elected them, and, and he sent these prophets to share his word, yet they rejected the prophets because their, heart, their hearts were hard. They rejected the Lord. And the leaders in Israel would bear special responsibility for the rejection of these prophets. But as, as we see, as Jesus sort of talks about what's going to happen with, with Israel here, the whole nation is culpable. The whole nation is culpable for their sin. So as we think about that, that story then, the parable's developing, the, the landowner plants his vineyard, hires, hires the tenants. He has sent three servants back to back to back to go get some fruit. They've treated each of the three the same way, beat them, sent them out, beat them, sent them out, beat them, sent them out. As we think about the text, if, if you hadn't read to the end, you'd say, well, I wonder what the landowner's going to do now, right? What's he going to do now that his tenants have mistreated his servants. We'll look there at verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. 
Now, if in your mind you read that and you think, okay, send a servant, rejected. Send a servant, rejected. Send a servant, rejected. What a wild act to send the son. Right? What a, what a wild thing to do. That's exactly the point. Right? That's exactly the point that we're supposed to get. This, this is a wild plan that, that the landowner has. Now, remember, we said that in a parable, you can't press every point. Right? So if, if the landowner is sort of a, a, a picture of God here, uh, you know, you, you can't press every point and say, oh, well, this guy seems like he's questioning what to do. He doesn't really know what to do, and he doesn't really know the outcome of what's going to happen, right? That's because Jesus is telling a story, and you can't press every point of a story, or else it just gets, gets out of hand, right? Because we know when he says, perhaps they will respect him, he's talking about the vineyard. But as we think about God, we know that, that he knew exactly what would happen to the son, right? He knew exactly what was going to happen to his son. He knew how his son would be treated. In fact, Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Right? When the son comes as the representative of his father, what happens in the story? Again, the tenants, they come up with this wild idea, let's kill him and we'll get the inheritance. Right? The only way that would work is if somehow the landowner has died, right? And they killed the last remaining. But it's it's the point is, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical to reject the servants, the landowner, and to reject the son. And so Jesus is driving at this point the same wickedness and greed that drove the, the, the spiritual leaders throughout Israel's history is now present in the generation that he is speaking to at the moment. All right, we'll see. Also, we, we alluded to this earlier, but by the end of Jesus' life, the crowd has joined in with the leaders. When Pilate says, what shall I do with them? They, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Right. So if we think about this in context, okay, the leaders asked Jesus where his authority came from. Essentially, there was two options, right? Did it come from heaven or did it come from man? And Jesus here, even in this parable, he's answering that question. That the beloved son was sent by the father. Right? He's answering, where did my authority come from? My authority comes from heaven. I am the son who was sent by the father. I've been sent to Israel as the savior. And yet again, he predicts his own death, letting everyone know what will come to pass. Letting, put it, putting everyone on notice that when this comes to pass, it will not have been an accident. It will not have been an accident. Okay, so that's, that's sort of the development of, of the parable and who Jesus is speaking to and what's, what's going on there. But let's look at how Jesus then kind of, thankfully, some of these parables, Jesus kind of turns and then tells you what he's saying. Right, and that's what he does here. He applies it a particular way. One thing I want us to notice is, is God's character put on display, not only through the parable, but through what the parable represents, the, sin, the, the sending of the beloved son. Right. So following the parable, let's, let's think about God's character here. What are we learning about God? Following the parable, Jesus asks this question to the people, 
what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What a great question, right? It reminds me of Nathan's question to David. You know, he tells him a sympathetic story. What should happen to this man? That's what Jesus does. He's already exposed these tenants as wicked. They have no argument. It's obvious what should happen to them, right? The landowner should come and destroy them and and hire someone else. That's what should happen. And that's what Jesus says happens. And and so as we're thinking about the justice of, if we're thinking about the character of God, what's one thing we see in the text? We see the justice of God. We see the justice of God. When we think about justice, particularly God's justice, I think we can go wrong in, in one, of, one of two ways. Or we can go wrong in both those ways, actually. Maybe they don't fork. Here's two ways we can go wrong. We can, be on the, we can go wrong in both of these, I think. And I think the religious leaders do. Right? One way we can go wrong is to assume that we can escape God's just wrath and anger by some other means other than Christ. Right? We can go wrong on the justice of God and thinking that I can escape the just anger and wrath of God by some other means than Christ. That's, that's part of the problem right? for these scribes, for these priests, for the leading men of the city. city. We'll see in a minute. They cannot, they cannot believe that they will actually be the ones who will experience the justice of God and the judgment of God. The second way I think we can go wrong about God's justice is, is related to it. It's, it's, and it's something we just alluded to that. Assuming that justice is for everyone else. right? Assuming that justice will be displayed towards others, but not towards me. See, I'm convinced everyone wants justice, just not towards our own son. Right? And what these people that were, were hearing Jesus, this, this crowd, the, the, the scribes and, and the religious leaders who are kind of hanging by what they needed to do was to recognize that despite all their religious talk, despite their high authority and position in the temple, power in Israel, that their hearts were far from God. They honor me with words, but their hearts are far from me. So far so far from God that they've rejected God's messenger, just like the parable, and they're about to kill the son. They've rejected the messenger, and they're going to kill the son. So as we contemplate God's justice, we might, we might say that the, the thing that differentiates, it's true of whoever's in this crowd, whoever is in that crowd that Jesus is addressing, and it's true of whoever's in this crowd this morning. The thing that differentiates someone who receives Christ and someone who rejects Christ is whether they are willing to feel the weight of their own sin. Feel the weight of their own sin. Right? That's what differentiates. If I I take one of those two wrong paths and say, well, I want justice for everyone else, or I think I can escape God's justice it's because I don't understand my own sin. I don't understand the, re- the reality of my own sin. And what the religious leaders were particularly good at is feeling the weight of everyone else's sins and not their own. Well, majoring on everyone else's sins 
and minoring on my own sin is the sort of demeanor that leads a person away from reliance on Jesus Christ is the only way to be reconciled to a holy and a righteous God. But for those who understand their sin, for those who understand their sin, they, they feel the weight of it. They feel the conviction that comes through the, the preaching of the Word of God, the sharing of the Word of God, and the work of the Holy Spirit. The justice of God actually drives you towards the compassion of God. Right? I think we see that in our text too. We see God's compassion. We, we can't read chapter 20 and Jesus' clash with the religious leaders and everything he does in Jerusalem, divorced from what happened in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, when Jesus looks over the city and he weeps. He weeps because they are walking in unbelief. Amazingly, Jesus is looking at the city where he knows he's going to die, and he's not lamenting his own life. He's lamenting those who are walking in unbelief and rejection because they had continually rejected the prophets, and they will reject him. Jesus demonstrates his compassion in Luke chapter 19. God demonstrates his compassion in the parable. Right When Jesus looks over the city and he weeps, and even earlier in Luke, he laments that they will not turn from their hard-heartedness. You see that Jesus is grieved over their rejection and unwillingness to receive him. Paul demonstrated a similar grief in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10. He says, I wish that my brothers, according to the flesh, that my fellow Israelites would see the glory of the gospel and could escape the curse of sin and turn to Christ and find him. We see the compassion of Christ on display here. He would take the curse. 2 Chronicles 36 says this, and this is why I say I think we see the compassion, not only in Jesus' work in Luke 19, but also in, in the parable itself of the messengers keep coming. right? Because 2 Chronicles 36 says this, The Lord, the God of their Father, sent persistently to them by His messengers. Okay, we, that's, that's ringing a bell, right? Why? Why would He do this? Why would he persistently send them his messengers? Second Chronicles 36 says, because he had compassion on his people. Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. God demonstrates his compassion. Why, why, why does the parable talk about multiple messengers? Why not just send the son right away? Isn't that the point? Jesus is the son and he's going to... Well, no, part of the point is Jesus or, or God compassionately continued to send his messengers to his people. And we see in Christ, in Christ's coming, that he is moved with compassion to act on their behalf. You may, you may be thinking this already, but I'm thinking of the passage like in Jonah and, and many other places in the Old Testament. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
Don't we see, don't we see God's patience in the text too? We not only see His grace, we not only see His, His compassion, but we see His patience. As I read the parable, I think, man, how patient, and, and I realize it's talking about God, how patient is God? How patient is God? You or I, after one servant, we're going there ourselves, and we're going to clean house. Right? It's not going to go well for them. Yet he kept sending representatives. He kept calling for their repentance. He kept pleading with them to turn from their sin. And he kept delivering them when they did. He kept acting on their behalf. He kept covenant faithfulness toward them, even when they had been unfaithful. He was patient and he was compassionate with his people. And we can praise God that that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can praise God that he never changes. He is still patient. He has been patient with us. If you are a Christian this morning and you have turned from your sin and you have trusted in Jesus Christ, He was patient with you in giving you time to repent. And if you're not a Christian this morning and you're still breathing, God is currently being patient with you. Don't wait. Don't wait. If you hear God's voice, if you hear Him calling you, Respond to Him. Turn to Him in faith. Admit your sin and trust in the death of Jesus Christ as the only means to be reconciled to Him. God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's patient. And He's abounding in steadfast love. And I think we see the love of God in this text. We see the love of God in display in our parable, in the sending of the Son. Right? It's hard to miss the fact that the vineyard owner refers to his son as the beloved son. Right? It reminds us of the way that God continually addresses Jesus at the baptism. When, when Jesus comes out of the water, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Right? It's, it, it, it's, again, it's in the text. Right? That, 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 that the father sends the son and that the, the idea is, You've got these servants, and they were important in Israel's history. The prophets were important, but the son, he, he's, he's, he's just different, right? He's, he's of the same essence of the father. That's what, it, that's what it means to be a son. He's different from the servants. He's the beloved son. And the consistent testimony of the New Testament that is that one of the greatest demonstrations of the love of God is the sending of the son. John 3.16 should come to mind, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? I memorized that in the King James because I was saved in a church that used the King James and it still comes out that way. You know, for those of you who are in Christ, you know, we talk a lot about union with Christ. We're going to talk about it a little bit in Bible Hour, but you, you are in the Beloved, if you are in Christ, you are in the Beloved, and you can have this unshakable confidence that God loves you and will never stop loving you. He will as soon stop loving His Son before He stops loving you. Not because you or I deserve it, not because we're so awesome. I mean, obviously, it's not that. It's because we're in Christ, and Christ is the Beloved Son, and if you're in Him, you're loved the way God loves 
the Son. You can rest assured of God's love for you. Despite the fact that you or I haven't had a perfect morning, despite our weakness, despite our lack of faith, some of you just came into church so discouraged, beaten up. God loves you if you're in Christ with the same steadfast love that He loves His Son. The same sort of love that belongs to Jesus. He has bestowed upon His people. We see God's character on display in the text. We see His compassion. We see His patience. We see His justice. We see His love. I think one thing we see too is His perseverance. And by that I mean He will accomplish His purpose. He will accomplish His purpose. But we need to keep finish walking through the text to, to see this one. So this is our, actually our point number three, God's plan. Look there in verse 16. He's asked, what shall the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Right, so we've seen that these, these tenants will be destroyed. And yet Jesus is not yet done warning the, the leaders in Israel of this impending judgment. We're going to see that uh, in subsequent chapters. Right, This was part of this judgment that Jesus speaks of was accomplished. Right? In, in the year A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed and many Jews were dispersed even beyond the boundaries of Israel. So if we're talking about the tenants being primarily, primarily the leaders who sort of represent Israel at large, they will have no temple to serve in. They will have no room for authority in Israel. They will have no grounds upon which they can continue to sort of sell their blemished sheep and rip people off with their money changers. There will be no place to offer their sacrifices. They're gonna, they will be destroyed in this judgment that will fall. And then what happens? The vineyard will be given to others. That's what the text says. The vineyard will be given to others. Judgment falls on Israel as a nation, and the blessings of salvation will go to those, uh, not who are part of a, a, a nation, but for those who place their faith in Christ. Right? This does not preclude faithful Israelites from trusting in Christ, right? The apostles themselves were Israelites. In fact, the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus would begin in Jerusalem and then spread out from there. We've said that the structure of the book of Luke and the, and the book of Acts is Jesus starts out in Galilee. In chapter 9, he, he begins to work towards Jerusalem. He dies in Jerusalem, is resurrected, ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then the message about Jesus uh, kind of begins to spread in Jerusalem, and then it works its way outside of Jerusalem. Right? That's, that's the big structure of Luke and Acts, and that's the point here. The, the, the vineyard's going to be given to others, but that doesn't preclude faithful Israelites trusting in Christ. Right? We, we would say that, the, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, 
the ethnic distinctions between Jew and Gentile are, born, are, are torn down. Right? The barrier of the dividing wall is destroyed in Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles worship side by side in the same church. What mattered most was not where you were born or to whom you were born, but whether you were born again into the family of God. So Israelites, you know, the, the gospel went to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And there would be lots saved, right, like on Pentecost. But by and large, by and large, the nation would reject Christ. The nation would reject the gospel. So in that sense, you know, we're pretty comfortable saying that following the death of Jesus, the blessings of salvation were directed towards the nations. Maybe Paul says like a partial, partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And it seems like the crowd understands this point. It seems like they understand what Jesus is, is saying here. When they hear that the vineyard will be given to others, they say, surely not. Surely not. They cannot believe that the blessings of God will, will, will go to, to the nations. And so when they respond that way, Jesus looks at them and says, well, in that case, if you're saying surely not, in that case, what in the world is meant by Psalm 118, verse 22? The stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. What's meant by that text, Jesus says? Though Jesus was despised and rejected on earth in His first coming, right? He's like, like a slab that would be used for a cornerstone to kind of support the foundation. It would be like a foundation stone. And the builders sort of look at the stone and they discard it and they use something else and they don't care about that stone. It was unfit to be used in construction. Yet, you know, it wasn't because of the unfitness of the stone, right? It was because the, the builders were blind. So they reject the, this stone, yet that's the very stone that becomes the cornerstone of God's people, God's spiritual temple, His people, the church. You know, it's interesting. You think about, you think about the parable, and you think, man, how does the death of the son not end the story? Or how does the rejection of the stone not end the story? How does the rejected stone become the cornerstone? How does, how does the rejected Messiah become the exalted one? Well, it's through the resurrection. It's through the resurrection. And so through Jesus' work and His death and resurrection, He becomes what we sang in that last song before the sermon, the church's one foundation. We have nothing else. We have nothing else. We don't gather here this morning because we all agree on sports. We don't all agree on food. right? We try to love each other at potluck and bring good food, but we gather this morning because we have one thing in common, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Jesus warns that everyone is judged by how they stand in relation to this stone. Everyone will be judged by how they stand in relation to the stone who has become the cornerstone. He says you either trip over the stone or you're placed like a brick in the building as a living stone yourself 
to be a spiritual house, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ Jesus. You either trip over the stone or you're built on top of the stone. And to stumble over the stone is to, to reject Christ. It's the simplest way we can say it. To stumble over the stone is to reject him in unbelief. And I think as you, if, if we're going to kind of pull from the rest of the New Testament, there's, there's a couple ways that people stumble. Right? By and large, the Gentiles were, were, were just too wise in their own eyes for the foolishness of the gospel. They were too wise in their own eyes for this foolish message of a man who's been killed for the sins of the world. And so they rejected the gospel. They didn't respect a discarded stone. The, the gospel was foolishness to them. They admired fierce conquerors, not a man suffering on their behalf. They didn't want a slaughtered lamb. The other way, I think the Jews stumbled over the stumbling block, was to be too good in their own eyes, to rely on the, their, their own selves for salvation. And that's what Paul says in the book of Romans. They, they, they sought to achieve the fulfillment of the law through their own deeds, so they stumbled over the cornerstone. Christ became a stumbling block because they pursued righteousness by their own good works. And Jesus says, those who stumble on the stone or those who have the stone fall on them will be crushed. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's, le he's leveling with everybody. He's getting real with everybody within earshot of his voice. He's essentially saying, we know where this is headed. We know where this is headed, not just because you're conspiring, but because I'm the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We know this is where we're heading, but will you consider the cost of your rejection? Will you consider the cost? Jesus levels with the crowd, and God levels with us this, us this morning through his word. Right? There are only two ways to respond to Jesus, and there are only two possible outcomes. In fact, one of the other, one of the, Places that this text is quoted is in Luke, is Luke chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. One with this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And, he says, and there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among, among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ, the discarded stone who has become the cornerstone. Thank you that in him we are being built up into a spiritual house. Lord, thank you that the gospel has come to us. Thank you for your patience with us. When we walked in unbelief and we walked in sin and we walked in rebellion, you were so kind and patient and slow. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. And thank you that we are united to him by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.